When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. On this episode of Newt's World... Come to Chinatown. Here we are. We're, again, careful, safe, and... Come join us. Back in January, I wrote an article for USA Today saying, we've got a pandemic, we've got a real problem. Imagine if he had said something. How many more people would be alive? This should not stop you from going about your life, should not stop you from going to Chinatown and going out to eat. I'm going to do that today myself. This disease, even if you were to get it, basically acts like a common cold or flu. Don't worry about it. Be more concerned about influenza than coronavirus. People wearing masks now is just not relevant. There is no need to change anything that you're doing on a day by day basis. You should not be afraid at all of getting on a plane and going to the Super Bowl. But if you want to fly to the Super Bowl, have fun. It's not a risk. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. As we try to make sense of COVID-19, there's so many different versions, so many different stories, so easily confused. I was very impressed recently by the job Carl Rove did on Sean Hannity in outlining step by step what had happened and what the truth was. So I'm really pleased to welcome as my guest, Carl Rove. Carl is someone I've known for many years and is a longtime friend. He served as senior advisor to President George W. Bush from 2000 to 2007 and deputy chief of staff from 2004 to 2007. At the White House, he oversaw the offices of strategic initiatives, political affairs, public liaison, and intergovernmental affairs, and was deputy chief of staff for policy, coordinating the White House policymaking process. 
Grove was inducted into the American Association of Political Consultants Hall of Fame in 2012 and is currently a Fox News contributor and Wall Street Journal columnist. I am really delighted to have Carl Rove, a friend who goes all the way back to, I think, 1979, when we were in a wedding together. He has been called the architect because of the extraordinary job he did for President George W. Bush, both in Texas politics, getting through the governorship and the re-election, and then getting through the presidential election and re-election, which were both extraordinary campaigns. And Carl Rove, of course, is very famous, remains very active. Carl, thank you for agreeing to be on this podcast. How could I say no, Speaker? <laughs> and you're right. I remember it vividly because we were at the wedding of your campaign manager, Bob Weed, in late January or early February of 1979. And we met at his bachelor party, which was at a redneck bar on a dirt road in southeast Georgia. And we all sat down and a bunch of 20-year-olds and you, and you were the freshman congressman. We sat down, ordered a round of beers, and you turned to us and said, I could be just like Henry Clay and the Warwigs, and began to talk about how we could take back control of the U.S. House of Representatives. It was the most fascinating evening and the worst bachelor party I've ever been to, I have to say. A fantastic evening. I apologize for ruining the bachelor party, but as you know, it turned out to be a longer march than I thought at the time, but we did ultimately get there. and. You were part of the reason we had great breakthroughs in Texas. You did something the other day on Hannity that I really wanted you to share with people because the depth of dishonesty in Democratic memories as they talk about the early days of the Chinese virus or COVID-19 between what really happened and what they would now like us to believe happened is pretty amazing. Could you just walk through the gaps between their version and reality? Your point about dishonesty, it really is either dishonest or it is a warped memory. I don't know which one it is, but Biden, for example, in June said that President Trump did, quote, did not listen to guys like me back in January saying we have a problem. A pandemic is on the way. And then in May, he said, if he just listened to me and others and acted just one week earlier to deal with this virus, there would be 36,000 fewer people dead. Even the Washington Post found that comment completely unsupportable and gave him four Pinocchios. And why? Because, look, the record shows what Joe Biden was thinking more by what his advisors were saying than what he was saying, because he wasn't saying all that much. But over the course of January, February and March, we know what he was thinking by what his people were going out and saying publicly. Now, he did start this on January 27th. He wrote an op ed in USA Today. It's 773 words long. I counted them all. Now, 292 of them are spent defending the handling of the 2014 Ebola outbreak in Africa, which Ebola is intensely different than what we're facing now. And it was far away, never came to our shores because it was contained abroad. He spent 268 words decrying President Trump's leadership style, not with regard to coronavirus, but just generally just a lot of adjectives and a couple of verbs attacking the president personally. And he spent 74 words suggesting that we faced, quote, the possibility of a pandemic. And then he gave a solution, 140 words. 
all of which were steps that he would take if he were elected president and inaugurated in January of 2021. He would beef up the public health emergency fund, which already exists. He would amend existing laws to allow presidents to declare pandemic emergencies, which the president already has the authority to do under the Stafford Act. And he would fully fund what he called the global health security agenda. Now, how any of these steps, which would have been taken 11 months later, would have helped us do anything with regard to what the crisis that we find ourselves in now is beyond me. Incidentally, at the time, his op-ed got panned. The Washington Post later described it as, quote, more of an attack on President Trump than a detailed plan of action. Now, four days later, the president of the United States issues the China travel ban. And Biden almost immediately decries it as, quote, hysterical xenophobia and fear mongering. Now, the Biden campaign today says he wasn't referring to the ban, but it sure sounds to me like it was. He's at an event in Iowa. The president has just instituted a ban on travel from China, specifically Wuhan. And Biden says it refers to hysterical xenophobia and fear mongering. Well, it's exactly what he was talking about. So the next day he went again to attack it, saying, quote, disease has no borders. Let's be honest. Back then he was attacking it. Today he's trying to suggest he wasn't. Now, it's not just Biden. It's the people around Biden as well. It really is remarkable. On January 28th, as this is being talked about, Ron Klain, who was for a time his top advisor on this issue, he was the guy in the Obama-Biden White House who was in charge of the Ebola effort. He dismissed the China travel ban as premature. The day before the travel ban is put in place, Zeke Emanuel, yes, that's Rom's brother, who's a physician at the University of Pennsylvania, told CNBC viewers to, quote, take a very big breath, slow down and stop panicking and being hysterical. The virus, quote, will go down as spring comes up. I mean, pretty amazing. Throughout February, all of these people around Biden kept minimizing the threat. There's Dr. Erwin Redlaner on February 6th wrote that a global pandemic was, quote, not very likely and predicted that the chances of, quote, getting a severe, potentially lethal form of the Wuhan virus is negligible. What's interesting to me is two things. One is he not only says it's negligible that this thing is going to be life threatening, but he also called it the Wuhan virus. I wonder if he's a racist and a xenophobe like the Biden campaign attacks President Trump for referring it as the Wuhan virus. On February 11th, Klain played down the likelihood of the virus at a conference by saying, quote, a serious epidemic, quote, the evidence probably suggests it's not that. Two days later, attacking the president directly, he says, we don't have a COVID-19 epidemic in the U.S., but we're starting to see a fear epidemic. Now, what does that mean? That means you, Mr. President, should not be hyping the danger of this disease. It's not a COVID-19 epidemic. It's a fear epidemic. And now they're trying to say, oh, the president was downplaying it. The president wasn't telling us the truth. Unbelievable. On the 20th, Emmanuel pops up again with his similar suggestion, quote, warm weather is going to come. And just like with the flu, the coronavirus is going to go down. These are the people who are advising Biden, people who are briefing him. These are the people whom he's sending out to attack the president by saying the president is hyping the threat from coronavirus. Then we get to late February and we get that wonderful appearance by Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco, worried about tourism in Chinatown. She goes out. We all remember that. Come on, people. Come on back. It's time for you to, quote, come to Chinatown. 
Klein echoes her three days later at a conference, saying people, quote, should not be dissuaded by needless fears about coronavirus. He added that everyone, quote, should tonight go down to Chinatown in their city and buy dinner and go shopping. We all remember how stupid it looked when Nancy Pelosi did that. But remember, the top advisor on the pandemic to Joe Biden is echoing her a couple of days later. Literally on a program on CNN with Wolf Blitzer on February 29th, Dr. Emanuel is being interviewed when the news breaks of the first coronavirus death at a nursing home north of Seattle. And literally, he's on set with Wolf Blitzer. And he and Blitzer begin to talk about what the response ought to be. And Emanuel says, quote, running out and getting a mask is not going to help, end quote. And then again, downplays the threat. That's on February 29th. Those are the people who are advising Biden, and they're clearly advising him, don't let this thing grab control of the public dialogue. Trump is spitting people up needlessly. This is not going to be a big deal at all. Then on March 12th, as it becomes apparent that the president is contemplating slapping a travel ban on from Europe, because remember, what happened is this breaks out in Wuhan, China. Wuhan and that part of China have significant travel links to northern Italy in particular. The disease is spreading in northern Italy and beginning to run all across Europe. So the president is thinking about a travel ban on Europe. And Lisa Monica, who is the Homeland Security Advisor in the White House under Barack Obama and a key advisor to now presidential candidate, then Vice President Joe Biden, she goes on television and says, quote, a wall will not stop the coronavirus, tying it to the wall on the southern border, but talking about the European travel ban. March 9th, Biden had had a major rally. On the 12th, he echoes Lisa Monica and downplays the necessity of a European travel ban. He talks about in-person voting until April 12th. I can't find in the period of January, February, or through mid-March, any time that the word masks crosses Joe Biden's lips or social distancing or lockdowns or even calls for more protective gear. None of that. Until mid-March, he finally says, you know, we ought to use the Defense Production Act to ramp up production of critical protective equipment for our health workers. And of course, two things. One is the president had already done that the day before. And second of all, the reason that we lacked PPE was because the Obama-Biden administration had run down the stockpiles and had not replenished them. So here was the great genius who today suggests if I had only been in charge, this would have been done picture perfect, who for January, February, and part of March is behind the curve and whose service as vice president of the United States did not lead him to say, well, we've had this threat of a pandemic and it didn't really emerge while we were in office, but we did distribute all of our PPE equipment. And because you can't keep that stuff on the shelf for years, you have to constantly replenish it. He didn't say, let's replenish it. He said, well, that was just a threat of an emergency. Let's not worry about it. We'll leave it for the next guy. I'm just really amazed at how this all happens and how they can now today claim to have had a good handle on what ought to be done and how it ought to be done. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Don't you find that that's almost the standard operating method now, both for the anti-Trump media and for the Democrats in general, that they just make up what they need to make up and suddenly it becomes a fact? You bring up a very good point. The media is complicit in this because there's nobody asking him tough questions during this period of time. Well, first of all, he's not answering questions for most of this time after he has his last rally. He very rarely in middle to late March and April is available to the press. When Zeke Emanuel goes on as an advisor to Joe Biden on CNN and says, don't run out and get a mask, he doesn't get asked that day. Well, you know, some health experts are starting to raise concerns. And certainly with the one exception of the Washington Post article that when he went out and said, if they'd listened to guys like me back in January saying we had a problem, a pandemic is on the way. That was in June. The Washington Post did do a piece that said four Pinocchios. But nobody has been saying, well, you know, all well and good for you to criticize President Trump on this regard, but weren't you and the people around you saying things like, quote, running out and getting a mask is not going to help? Zeke Emanuel on February 29th. February 11th, we're starting to see a fear epidemic, Ron Klain. Now, Ron Klain, I'm sure he's continuing to advise the vice president, but they don't put him on TV anymore because they think maybe someday some reporter might actually get tough with him on it. But you're right, the media is complicit in what is really a cover-up of Joe Biden's lack of foresight on this issue and his criticism of President Trump being too aggressive. 
watching them flounder around on this is amazing. And of course, I have a double bias because I think if you look at how totally mishandled Cuomo and Murphy were in New York and New Jersey, they are an enormous part of the statistical problem because people died that shouldn't have. There's one other data point here. Joy Reid begins her program and her first guest is Joe Biden. And it's obviously a softball interview, but she asked him a question, which I think she hoped that he would come forward and be a rock star on. She says, well, if you get elected, what are you going to do? What would you do differently? And so he waxes eloquently and lists six things. Here are the six things that I would do. The problem was every one of these things had already been done. President Trump had already done every one of them. He said, well, we ought to appoint somebody to be in charge of viruses and vaccine production and distribution. Well, that had happened like five or six weeks before. And then we ought to invoke the Defense Production Act. Well, the president had done it like 30 times by that point. So even then, the media didn't hold him to account by saying, well, given a softball question and ask what he would do, he said he would do the things that the president has already done. Nobody in the press held him up for scrutiny on that at all. Of course, it's also conceivable that most of the press didn't know it either. This is a complicated thing. I was in the White House for seven years. We had SARS and we had MERS. We had three instances where the possibility of a pandemic arose. And I'd go to these briefings and they were scary because if they get out of control, they are very problematic. That's the nature of a pandemic. SARS was feared to be easily transmittable, turned out not to be. But if it had been, we would have seen something like what we're seeing today in 2002 and three. And MERS was reasonably easily to transmit and was spread throughout people attending the Hajj. But what I learned was these things are difficult to manage. These things are difficult to contain. These things are difficult to estimate and you can prepare a lot for them, but they can go a lot of different directions. And there's no humility at all on the part of the media that they can now look back in hindsight and say, we know exactly what needed to be done at the time. But you're right. They're not asking tough questions. These things are difficult and hard to manage. Biden looks in the rearview mirror and says, I could have done it right. But we know what he would have been doing by the nature of the comments from the people who are around him. And he would have been doing the wrong things. I think it's pretty clear that Biden's inability to think in an orderly way and to get things done. And I know Bob Gates, who had been Secretary of Defense for both Bush and Obama, wrote in his memoir that In Biden's entire career, he, Gates, could not remember a single time that Biden was on the right side of a national security question. From a guy who prides himself on being pretty nonpartisan, I thought that was an amazing comment. I agree, yeah. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Let me switch gears on you for a minute, because I can't have you on without taking you into an area where you've done, I think, an extraordinarily important job in an election that both you and I believe was one of the most important in American history and one of the least studied. You wrote a terrific book on Triumph of McKinley in the election of 1896. First of all, what drew you to do that? And what do you think people today should learn from it? Well, actually, it was a complete accident. I was trying to get into the PhD program at the University of Texas at the age of 40-something, and I had to finish my BA. And in order to do so, I signed up for a history class that was never given, History 351 Seminar in Historical Source Writing. You had to get a professor to take you on do research in the original source material and write a paper and you could get three hours and fulfill the upper division writing requirement. I'd been running a public affairs firm and been involved in political campaigns for a decade and a half and there was no evidence I could string together two sentences. So I had to fulfill the upper division writing requirement. Being a direct mail guy, I had to show that I could write. So I stumbled into the department and not knowing that this was never done, and the woman behind the counter sort of looked askance at me and said, this just simply is not done. I said, well, how can I get it done? And she said, well, you have to get a professor to take you on. I said, who's here? And she said, well, there's only one professor in the department, Dr. Lewis Gould. So I said, well, could I see him? And I said, I'd like to take History 351. He said, well, what do you want to research and write about? And I said, I'm interested in Theodore Roosevelt in 1895 and 1896. How does he rescue himself from political oblivion. In 1895, after having run third in the race for mayor of New York, he's added to the police commission. And six months later, he hates the job. He glories in it when appointed and hates it shortly thereafter and is in lawsuits with his fellow commissioners against each other. And he backs the wrong guy for president. He's for the front runner, Thomas Brackett Reed, the Speaker of the House. And Reed loses to the upstart reformer, William McKinley. And McKinley does not like Roosevelt. And yet somehow or another, he becomes the assistant secretary of the Navy and enters into history. And unbeknownst to me, Lewis Gould was one of the great historians of the Gilded Age. And he said, I'll take you on. I've never done it, but I'll take you on. But you have to read the McKinley papers because history gets McKinley wrong. 
And the more I read in the McKinley papers, which are a gigantic archive, disorganized, not well structured, Library of Congress and the University of Texas is a sub-depository, so it has a copy on microfilm. The more I rambled through the McKinley papers, the more impressed I was with the man, his mind, his manner, his method. So I just sort of began to make it a private cause to understand better William McKinley and the election of 1896, which political scientists have studied for a long time. It's considered one of the five realignment elections in American history, along with 1800 and 1824, 1860 and 1932. And yet we never studied the man. And McKinley turns out to be a remarkable figure one of the most amazing people to have been president of the United States. And his election disrupted the broken politics of the Gilded Age, which was a 24-year stalemate, and ushered in a 32-year period of Republican dominance. What, if anything, do you think you learned studying 1896 that might apply to where we are now? The first thing is, and he came to this reluctantly, but he was losing in the summer and the early fall and then realized that he needed to have a big issue. He was trying to avoid the big issue, currency. Should we have money that was backed by silver or money that was backed by gold? The Democrats were afire in the middle of an enormous depression by saying that the way out was to provide more money to people by switching to a silver-backed currency. And he tried to avoid that issue. But he realized in late August, early September, that he couldn't, and that he had to make the campaign about a big issue and a big contrast. And he framed his approach by trying to persuade sort of key voter blocks, laborers, farmers, commercial and professional people, small business owners, union veterans, that he was right and William Jennings Bryan was wrong, which required him to get to the nub of the issue. He had to talk about the essential parts of that. The second thing is he took on what everybody thought was his opponent's supposed strength. Everybody thought Brown was winning, and he was because he was advocating free silver and an inflationary currency. But the major, as he liked to be called, realized that what a candidate often thinks is his strong point is sometimes his Achilles heel, and he found a way to go after him. Third, he was a different kind of Republican, and he realized that his country was changing dramatically and that his party had to modernize its appeal to reach to these new urban workers many of whom were from the Southern Europe, from Spain and Italy. And these were not Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And that was what the Republican Party was in the North, was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in the North and black Republicans in the South. But all these people who are now coming from Central and Southern Europe, they had no real allegiance to either party and were up for grabs. They were mostly Catholic and oftentimes industrial workers. And he knew that if his party didn't grab them, they would give the Democrats a lock on the Electoral College. So he expanded the Republican coalition and did so by making a special effort for the laborer vote. He also ran a campaign that went after places that had not been in play. He understood that you couldn't just sort of run in the standard set of the states that had given the Republicans the presidential hold. Uh, so he went on offense. He went after border states that had never voted Republican, like Kentucky and North Carolina and Tennessee and Virginia and West Virginia and Delaware, Maryland that had not voted Republican since 1864. And he won all of the border states with the exception of Missouri. And in Missouri, he lost it because the Republican Party was deeply divided among itself. It allowed the party to pick up two Republican senators in the border and upper South regions and hang on to most of the seats that they'd won in the 1894 midterms. 
This allowed them to have a majority in the Congress that could pass his program. He also was an outsider. His slogan was the people against the bosses. That was his primary campaign slogan. And he took on the party bosses who had been in charge of the Republican Party for some number of years. He was attacked by the most powerful interest group in the country, which was a virulently anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant group called the American Protective Association. And he basically took him on and became the first Republican ever endorsed by a member of the Catholic hierarchy. And he was a candidate to change. So he was the guy who went on there and said, I'm not content with the status quo. I want to change and big change, but it's not going to be threatening change. It's going to be the kind of change that I talk about in a way that makes it acceptable for you. That, by the way, is a very good summary. What do you think are the lessons you would hope that Trump and his team might draw in the next six weeks? The election's got to be a contrast. You've been saying this, and I think it's absolutely right. The president needs to have a forward vision. We began to lay it out the Sunday before the Republican convention. They put out a very strong list of forward-looking agenda items, and they talked about it a little bit during the convention. But in the final days, in my opinion, he's got to say, I'm the guy who had a strong economy in 17, 18, and 19, and I'm the guy who's better able to restart the economy as we put coronavirus in the rearview mirror. That's a very powerful argument. I think it gets to be more powerful if he says, not only am I going to do the things that I did before, but here are new things that I'm going to do in order to make the economy stronger and prosperity broader and the opportunity for every American to participate in it better. Here's what I'm going to do. And then that's better than what that guy's going to do, because what he's going to do is the following things. And these things are going to be bad for you and your family. It's an election of contrast. The second thing that I think is really important to do, and that is they're looking for ways to expand their coalition. And we see this most obviously among Latinos and most obviously in Florida, where they have been working assiduously behind the scenes to cultivate strong connections with the Cuban American community, the Venezuelan American community, all of those they've been working in various sundry ways. The first two are the Cuban Americans are returning to their Republican roots, in part because the Democrats are so bad. The Venezuelan Americans and others from South America who have family experience with socialists are being moved in part by the president and also in part by Joe Biden and the Democrats. The Trump campaign is smart enough to realize that the Puerto Rican movement in the aftermath of the horrible hurricane, the middle class in Puerto Rico upped and moved to the United States, many of them to Florida. And they are open to voting Republican because they are middle class. They're professionals and small business people and entrepreneurs and managers and hard workers who've got a strong work ethic and a wonderful spirit among themselves that I'm going to pick myself up, dust myself off after a hurricane hit our island, and I'm going to start fresh and new. And they like Trump. They're open to voting for him. And they've been smart to go after him because you cannot win this election simply by maximizing turnout among the party's traditional followers, the people who voted for Trump in 2016. You got to add to their numbers. And part of those numbers have got to be new voters. And some of them have got to be people who may not have voted for you last time around, but are open to voting for you if you make the right argument to them this time. Listen, thank you. This has been fascinating. You're one of the smartest guys in American government and politics. And I think this particular podcast sort of illustrates it. Just look at the range of everything we just covered. But as always, Carl, it's a lot of fun to be with you and talk with you. And I'm personally in your debt for doing this. Well, Speaker, I'm honored to be invited. And I've treasured our friendship over these many years.
Leonard M. from Missouri asks, Mr. Gingrich, I want to know why we cannot get a six-year term policy enacted for members of both houses of Congress. If we don't get that passed, then we'll never be able to drain this swamp and its rats. Well, you know, the founding fathers tried to find a balance. They deliberately wanted the House elected every two years because they wanted to be able to get people to be responsible to the public. I know when I was in the House, the day after the election, I was out shaking hands because I knew that the next election was only two years away. And I cite that because I'm not so sure we want both branches elected every six years and being that far away from the American people. The balance is that one third of the Senate's voted on every two years, one third comes up again the next two years, and then one third the last two years. So the Senate always has two thirds of its members a little bit beyond the immediate public pressure. The House comes up every two years and every member is at stake. And the presidency, of course, is every four years. So I actually think that's a pretty good balance that gives you a little bit of perspective, but also keeps the heat on. And frankly, I trust the American people more than I trust either the elected officials or the bureaucrats. So I'm pretty comfortable making the House accountable to the American people. Thank you to my guest, Carl Rove. You can read more about the truth behind the coronavirus on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer a selection of questions in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.